believe as a church that every time we gather as believers are special moments. We believe that when we come together as believers, the Lord moves in amazing ways. But I also believe that there are times, there are Sundays in which we gather in which everything is like extra special. I believe that this is one of those Sundays. Part of the reason why I say that this is an extra special Sunday is because we have this beautiful orchestra right behind us leading us in worship this morning. So let's give them a round of applause. We want to thank Dr. Clemmy. Uh, Did I get that? Oh, nice. I practiced that one like three or four times. Um, Dr. Clemmy for being here, leading us in worship this morning. And it's also extra special because we get to introduce our new members, official members, into the church. So I'm going to ask you to please come to the front. Um, as you know, as a church, we believe that when we are saved, we are saved in Jesus but we are also saved into a community of faith in what we call the, the universal church of Jesus Christ. But with that, we also are saved into a smaller, if you guys could come closer to the middle, thank you, into a closer community uh, or local community, local expression on that, which is the local church. Today, then, we have two beautiful families. So I'm going to ask you to, uh, to uh, really quick, your name, how long have you guys been here, and what do you love about this church? Whoever wants to start. I'm here with Robin Hundekoss. Uh, we've been coming for about a year. We're just very grateful to be part of this family. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. Thank you. Hilda Stewart. Stephen Stewart. We've been coming since November. Wow. Now, none of you guys tell me what you guys love about this church. <laughs> Diversity. Diversity. The focus on reaching the community around us. Amen. Uh, very Bible-centered. Very Amen. important to us. Amen. Gospel-centered, family-oriented. Amen. Thank you. All right, so I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. We, we are, I'm going to ask you guys a few questions, and then I'm going to ask you a question, and we're all supposed to participate. Amen? All right. Before God and us, your brothers and sisters in Christ, do you affirm that Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord, and do you commit yourself to him to walk by his Spirit in holiness and love? Do you believe in the doctrine of the Christian faith set forth in the constitution of this church? And would you live consistently by those doctrines? Do you promise with God's help to participate in the worship and work and support of this church in a spirit of love and community? And do you commit to pursue our mission that we should uh, be a church that loves God, loves one another, loves our neighbors, uh, and loves the nations? Now, I'm going to ask you, congregation, for those of you that are already official members of the church, and even if you're not an official member, you get to participate on this one. Will you, the current members of Witten Bible Church, now commit yourself to the love and care of these new members of our church? Would you pray for our unity, that our unity, unity glorifies Christ, so that we might together worship Christ and further his cause both here and around the world? And we say? We um, Now I want you to stand, please. And I would like you to please uh, stretch out your hand, raise, out, raise your hand so we could, we could pray for these beautiful new members. My beautiful Savior, we are so grateful that we get to see and witness the power of the gospel working in the lives of our brothers and sisters. What a privilege, what a blessing, what an amazing thing we get to see today. That not only, Lord, you saved them uh, into a saving relationship with you, but that you saved them so they could be part of a greater cause, greater things, greater mission, greater identity, greater family, which is the family of Jesus Christ. And we get to enjoy them being part of our family. So I pray for your blessing upon them. 
And I pray that you protect them. And I pray, Lord, that you use them. And I pray, Lord, that the gifts and abilities and talents may be used in this place for the glory of God and the well-being of others. I pray, Lord, that you bless their marriages and their families, that people may see that you are good through them. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says, how about we give them a round of applause? Thank you, guys.
Amen. Amen. Let's hear from God's word. A reading from John. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light.
be seated. Good morning, everyone. Holy Scripture teaches us that we are to sing praises to our God. And as we read God's word, we learn that we were created to sing and that it is through music that God specially speaks to us and through music that we can enjoy him and glorify him forever. It's not just singing either. Psalm 150 tells us and encourages us that we can sing praises and play praises to God with strings and tambourine and cymbals and harp and lute and trumpets. And so we wish to share some special music with you this morning. And as we do, it gives us the opportunity to acknowledge and appreciate some of the special blessings God has given us. The blessing of imagination, the blessing of the senses of sight and hearing and feeling, and for the incredible capacity to connect with one another in the image of our Creator. I encourage you to turn to the back page of your worship order where scriptures have been shared with you and to reflect upon and read those scriptures as we share this music.
continue to praise Jesus with Ferris, Lord Jesus. Let's stand. of the Lord and then have a seat.
Hey church family, Pastor Phil here with just a few announcements before we get started this morning. We are once again taking part in Lent, an intentional and extended time of communion with God, both individually and as a community, leading up to Good Friday and Easter. The first six weeks, we are praying through some of the prayers of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Then during Holy Week, we will pray through and reflect on key passages in Matthew about Jesus' last week. To learn more and find the prayer and scripture reading schedule, along with our Easter service times, visit wheatonbible.org Easter. Have you ever been talking with a coworker, friend, or neighbor about something they need help with and thought to yourself, I wish I could just grab a small group of people from church to help with this. We could easily get this done in a couple of hours. Now's your chance. This is exactly why we do CareFest. Each year, around 1,000 people from our church and surrounding community band together and complete care projects for people and organizations in our area. Last year, we completed over 60 projects. Do you know someone we could care for this year? If you have an idea, go online to wheatonbible.org carefest and let us know. In that same spirit of serving each year with CareFest, we have an incredible opportunity for you to be part of an on-call group of people called the Give Help Team, who are available when needs in our church family are shared with us. Maybe it's driving someone to a doctor appointment who doesn't have a car, light electrical work, or just cleaning a room. Whatever you're available to do, the commitment is only for six months at a time. When a need arises in the areas you've signed up for, our staff will reach out to you to see if you're available. To learn more and let us know if you'd like to be on this team, visit wheatonbible.org slash givehelp. That's all the announcements I have for you this week. Have a great day and let's worship God together. As we continue in an attitude of worship, I'm going to ask please the ushers to come to the front. And I want to remind you that if you are part of the church, uh, this is something that we do every week as an act of adoration, as an act of worship. If you are visiting the church for the first time, please do not feel obligated in participating in this whatsoever. This is something that we believe we ought to practice in this church if we, are, uh, if this, we consider this to be our church. If you're visiting, please, this, is, uh, this service is our gift uh, from us uh, to you. You may pass the plates. Um, as we pass the plates, uh, I just want to read a couple of texts um, to set the tone and why is it that we collect an offering and we give our tithing and offerings to the Lord every week. The gist of it is this. We believe as a church that everything we give to the Lord is because everything we have first was owned by the Lord. Or, to put it in a different way, that everything we have belongs to the Lord. Amen? Let me read just a couple of verses, and I want you to meditate. Take the time to meditate on those verses just for a second. This comes from 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11. We're starting in verse 11, and it says, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Everything belongs to the Lord. Everything belongs to the Lord. Whether it's in heaven or on earth, everything belongs to the Lord. 
But then look at what the writer says in verse 14. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give you to, uh, to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. You know what's beautiful about that text? That even in the grace of God, what we can give the Lord, he gave us so we could give him. Everything comes from the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we start to get ready for the preaching of your word... And as we have spent some time uh, enjoying and tasting the beautiful, uh, beautiful tones and sounds, and as we have been reflecting and exalting uh, your name, and as we have been recognizing that you are beautiful and powerful and amazing, as we have responded in worship, Lord, and as we have uh, uh, responded in adoration, even with our giving, with our giving, Lord, we, we want to ask you, Lord, that you continue to exalt yourselves, yourself in our, in our midst. We want to ask you, Lord, that you continue to glorify yourself in our midst. Because at the end of the day, Lord, what we need the most is not just to worship you more just because. And we don't need to pray more just because. And we don't need to give more just because. And we're not even here just because. We do all of that, Lord, because you deserve it, and we do all of that because we need more of you. We need a better picture, bigger picture, more profound, magnificent image of who you are and what you came to do. So now, Lord, as we get ready for the preaching of your word, I pray that by the power of your spirit, the presence of your spirit, and the person of your spirit, you illuminate our minds, move our affections and hearts, and influence our will. Please give us the wisdom as a church to be able to uh, steward this money that you have given us well for the glory of your name and the well-being of others. And I pray, Lord, that you do just that, that you magnify yourself as we open up your word. And we pray for all this in the name of Jesus and the church says, I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Good morning. Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 17, verses 24, verses 14 through 24. You can find this on page 94 of your journal. This is God's word. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. 
Then they came together in Galilee. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, and the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, how's everyone doing? For those of you who don't know, by the way, this thing is super tight. I feel like this. Um, I want to welcome you all to Wheaton Bible Church. My name is Hannibal, and we are so glad that you are here, whether you're already part of the church or you're visiting for the first time. Uh, you have no idea what a pleasure and blessing it is for us to have you here. And today, as a church, uh, we continue in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And if you were here last week, you may remember that we started um, uh, to look at into Matthew chapter 17, which is where we find the transfiguration. Um, where the transfiguration happened. Uh, and the reason, and, and there is a reason why in that event, uh, Jesus shines over all. And there's a reason why Moses and Elijah appear. And there is a reason why the Father spoke from heaven. Uh, and he says, this is my beloved son. Uh, in him I am well pleased. And there's a reason why uh, at one point all of that disappears. Moses and Elijah disappears. The voice of the Father disappears. And the and the shining light that came from within Jesus also disappeared. And then the key text in that section is verse 8. When it says that the disciples looked up and they saw no one except Jesus. And if you were here last week, you may remember that the explanation for that is because that text wanted to tell us that Jesus is at the center of everything. That he is the person the Bible talks about the most. That everything goes to him and, and, and comes from him. That the Bible is about him and points to him in everything he does. The fulfillment of the law, Moses, and he's the ultimate prophet, um, a better Joshua, uh, Elijah. That he is the reason why the father spoke and said the things he said. And that he is also the reason why the main ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify or exalt or point to Jesus. It's the same reason why Hebrews 1, in verse 3, says this. That the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The gist of it is this. That in order for us to understand and know and believe in the God of the Bible... We must understand and know and believe in the Jesus of the Bible. 
that Jesus not only is the point of the Bible, but it's also the key to understand the God of the Bible. Amen? Let me say that again because that was really good too. That Jesus is not only the one that points to the is the main point in the Bible and points to God in the Bible, but it's also the key of understanding and believing in the God of the Bible. No Jesus, no God. I need you to do me a favor and look at the person next to you and say that. No Jesus, no God. Now, the text we're looking at this morning is going to continue with that narrative, with that, with that theme. So the second part of Matthew chapter 17 is a continuation of the first part of Matthew 17. The first part of Matthew 17. And I'm going to talk about three more things about Jesus that we must see in this text. That no one except Jesus is the great God. That no one except Jesus is worthy of our faith. And no one except Jesus is the heart of God. The great God, worthy of our faith, and the great God. So let's go with point number one, that no one except Jesus is the great God. Now, this is an interesting text. Even though it's one section with Matthew 17 altogether, this is an interesting text here. And this section is really interesting because there we find two different events. Two different events that are, one is happening at the beginning of the text and the other one is happening at the end of the text. And those two events seem to be saying something, but in reality they're saying something else. Or put it this way, they would say something, but they're pointing to something else. Now, if that's hard for you to understand, let me, let me give you um, this explanation or illustration. If you have been in a meaningful relationship ever in your life, if you're married or had boyfriend or girlfriend or really close friend or something, if you have been in a meaningful relationship, you must learn to exercise that gift is the gift of being able to discern what is it that the person is saying it, what is it that the person is saying, and what the person is saying with what the person is saying. Let me put it this way, just in case you missed it. You could say something, and you mean that, but you mean something else. Is that clear? If you lost, this is the perfect example. If you're married, you better learn how to do this. I've been married with my wife. Heidi and I have been married for 27 years. Um, and I could humbly and respectfully say that part of the reason why our relationship has worked for 27 years is because of me. <laughs> I'm not being, you know, let me finish. Let me finish. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not, I'm not being sarcastic here. My wife is amazing. For those of you that know my wife, she's amazing. She's a godly woman. She's committed to the Lord. She's committed to the family. She's committed to all of these things, right? Uh, um, but, but, man, I got to take some credit. I've developed some mean skills to make this relationship work. And, and, and I want to explain it this way. Actually, we, we go through this almost every month, almost every month. Sometimes my wife would say something, which she means what she's saying, but she also means more than what she's saying. So, for example, we're watching a show together, usually in the evening, right? And then the dogs start to bark. I have two dogs. Christian pastor with two dogs that their names are Greek, from Greek gods, Hercules and Zeus. 
So the dogs are barking because they want to get out. And then I hear Heidi saying something like, by the way, she knows that I was going to say this today. She says, I'll be right there, Hercules. I'll be right there, Zeus. And I know exactly what she means by that. <laughs> she is not talking to the dogs. <laughs> She's talking to me. So because I know that's the thing, I just pretend like if nothing is happening. And she repeats it again a little louder. I'll be right there, Hercules. Be right there, Zeus. What is interesting, though, is that she knows that one of the dogs speaks Spanish and the other dog speaks English. So one of the dogs does not understand what she's saying. Who is she talking to? And then I finally says, like a godly man I am, okay, I'll do it. And then she says, no, 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 I'll do it. And inside I say, yeah, right. All of this was for me to get ready to take care of these dogs. All right, this is family, right? How many of you guys got, have gone through that? We all do that. And I want to argue that Matthew chapter 17 is making the same thing. Matthew here is saying something. But he wants us to see beyond the things that he's saying. He's pointing us to something, but he wants us to see beyond the things that we see. So in these two encounters, we ought to see not just the encounter, but the God behind the encounter. So at the beginning of the text, we have this man that is desperate because his son is struggling. So in verse 14, we read, and it says that a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Verse 15, he says, Lord, have mercy on me. My son has seizures and he's suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire and into water. Look at how Jesus responds in verse 18. Jesus rebuked the demon and he came out of the body and was healed at that moment automatically. Now, this is interesting because the word rebuke there in the original can be translated as he spoke with authority, with divine authority. It was a command. Now, that's important for you to see because this is, you don't see Jesus grabbing uh, some uh, tree branches and just smacking the kid with the branches. You don't see Jesus using some weird tone of voice like, get out. No, 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 you don't see Jesus blowing on this kid's face or grabbing a crucifix and putting it on his forehead. No, 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 the only thing that we see Jesus doing is speaking with divine authority. He says, get out. And automatically the kid is healed. The kid is healed. Now, Someone may hear that and say, well, I know what the point of the text is. It's about exorcism. It's about how to get demons out of people. And listen, I know you mean well, but that is not the point of the text. That is not what Matthew wants us to see. The point of that section, the thing that Matthew wants us to see, is that Jesus has power over darkness. That as much as evil spirits, as much as uh, Satan is powerful, 
And as much as Satan and his demons are behind many evil things in this, in this world, that as much as Satan and many demons are real things in this world, they have nothing on Jesus. That Jesus is the ultimate authority, that he's the one that could speak to them and say, get out. And they must submit to him. That because Jesus is the great God, he is, the, is God's glory, the exact representation of God's being, he can just speak to evil darkness or to darkness and Satan and the power of Satan must submit to him. This is not the same thing that we saw in Job chapter 1, if you're familiar with that story. I always find it intriguing that there's a conversation between Satan and God, and Satan asks permission from God to make Job's life miserable. Which is super interesting because Satan doesn't have the power to do whatever he wants, however he wants it. And we see the same thing in this interaction in Luke chapter 22, in which Jesus is talking to Peter, and Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you all as wheat. And for some reason, the permission was granted. In both occasions, Satan must submit to God. So just in case you missed it, no one except Jesus is the great God. Because no one except Jesus can speak to Satan, and Satan must submit to him. That Jesus, the great God, can speak to an evil spirit, and the evil spirit must submit to him. That is the first part of the text. When you go to the last part of the text, now we find Jesus... And Peter talking about taxes, which I know that during this season, we all love to talk about taxes. But from verses 24 to 26, Jesus and his disciples arrive in Capernaum, and the collectors are collecting the temple tax, says the text. And the temple tax per individual is two drachmas, which is an equivalent of a one-day salary in modern times. So someone asked Peter this question. Does Jesus pay the temple tax? Tax, And he says, yeah, of course he does. But then Jesus sends Peter to do this thing in verse 27. Go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch. Open its mouth and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them. And someone may read that and say, oh, I know what that text is all about. It's about paying taxes. And I would say, I know you mean well, but you really don't know what you're talking about. I would say yes or no, maybe. Yes, you have to pay taxes. That's a, the morally right thing to do, just in case. But the text is about much more than that. I don't want you to miss this, church. I want you to pay attention to what Jesus does. He sends Peter to go fishing, and he says, take the first fish you catch. Don't, don't, don't go and fish as many fish as you want. Catch the first fish. 
and then open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma, drachma, uh, drachma, drachma coin. If you notice, which is the exact amount of the taxes that they both need to pay. So what is it that Matthew is saying that he wants us to see? And what is it that this points to that Matthew wants us to see? That Jesus as the great God, as the glory of God, as the exact representation of God, is the God of the Bible that is sovereign God over all. That has control over everything, including control over nature, even control of a little stinky fish. Also, Matthew wants us to see that this great God is the God of providence. That he uses everything to accomplish his plans, even a stinky fish. And that this Jesus is the omniscient God. That he knows everything there is to know, even where to find a four drachma coin. Isn't that amazing? It's so easy to get lost in the text and forget what's happening here. Look at what Matthew is do doing. He's magnifying Jesus. He's saying that Jesus is the power of God over darkness. He magnifies Jesus by saying that Jesus is God's power over nature. That he is the sovereign God, the providential God, and the omniscient God. He paints the picture of Jesus as being the God that cares for the afflicted and not only has the power to liberate them, but he wants to liberate them. He points to Jesus as the God that commands things and things happen. He points to Jesus as the God that uh, nothing is outside of his control. He sustains everything by the power of his word. He points to Jesus as the God that sees it all and knows it all and knows what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. He points to Jesus as the God that he speaks to demons and he speaks to nature. And they both submit. It's not just about taxes. And it's not just about demons. It's about magnifying this beautiful, powerful, amazing Jesus we call our Savior. So here's a question for you. Is that the kind of God we ask to become our personal assistant? Is that the kind of God we put in our pocket whenever we want to and we use him whenever we want to? Is that the kind of God that we could say to him, I'm going to submit to you in this area, but not in this area. Can you say that? Is that the kind of God we can say to, I'm going to love you my way? Of course not. Either Jesus is the great God and we take him as he is, or we don't get to take him at all. This is not the kind of Jesus that we ask to be a personal assistant. Are you tracking with me? And if that is true, then that Jesus is the only one that is worthy of our faith. If that is the Jesus of the Bible... If that is the great God, then he is the only one 
worthy of our faith. Point number two, no one except Jesus worthy of our faith. And I want you to see here really quick, uh, there's something beautiful in the text because he shows us, it's actually inviting us to have the right faith in the right person. And he's going to show us three different kinds of faith in the same text. Three different kinds of faith in the same text. Or three different ways in how to respond to Jesus. So one, the number one is to have faith in any, to have faith in anything but Jesus. The second one is to have little faith in Jesus. And the third one is to have faith as the mustard seed. Faith in anything but Jesus, little faith in Jesus, or the faith of the mustard seed. Let me walk you through that. Look at the first example, the faith in anything but Jesus. I don't know if you caught this. It's one of the things that if you read it fast, you miss it, right? But at the beginning of the text, when the father brings this kid to Jesus to perform this miracle so he can deliver him, right before he does that or before he did that, he had taken, uh, Jesus says this. Actually, yeah, before he does the miracle, he says this in verse 17. You unbelieving and perverse generation... How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Now, I got to be honest. I always found that text super weird. Because it doesn't seem like if that's the way Jesus talked to people that are struggling. At least not in the rest of the narrative. So it feels harsh. So you got to ask the question, who is Jesus talking to here? Is he talking to the disciples? And I'm going to make the argument that I don't think that he's talking to the disciples. Is Jesus talking to a group of people that chose not to believe? Maybe. Is he talking to maybe demons and Satan? Maybe. Actually, the text is not super clear about who is Jesus talking to. I do know for a fact that he's not talking to the disciples. What we do know, though, is that he is addressing a group of people or beings that are choosing not to believe and are perverse. That's what the text says. Now, this is interesting. Because the word perverse is not just that you're evil, but the word perverse in the original is someone that not only is choosing not to believe, but that are doing everything in his or her power for others not to believe. That's the word perverse. That not only they have chosen not to believe in Jesus, but they are influencing everyone they can as much as they can, so they don't trust Jesus either. But this is the point I want to make here. Just because someone does not believe in Jesus does not mean that they're not people of faith. Isn't that provocative? That just because the person has chosen not to believe in Jesus does not mean that this person... Is not a person of faith. Everyone is a person of faith. Everyone must trust in something and worship something. The difference is the object of our faith. So in this case, the unbeliever is choosing not to believe in Jesus, but maybe, maybe, just maybe, they're choosing to believe in themselves. To trust in their ideas, to trust in what they like, to trust in what they believe, to trust in what they accomplish. Isn't that the root of humanism? 
The problem of humanism is not lack of faith. The problem of humanism is putting your faith in the, in the individual instead of God. The humanist is the one that is saying, I trust only one thing. I believe only in one person, me, myself, and me. Me, myself, and I. Or, me, myself, and science. Me, myself, and politics. Me, myself, and career. Me, myself, and money. Me, myself, and gifts. Me, myself, and anything at all. Everyone is a person of faith. What makes the difference is the object of our faith. In this case, the object of this person's faith is not Jesus, it is themselves. So, of course, this person is not going to find Jesus worthy of adoration. But let's talk about the second faith, because I actually think that this is more popular, even within Christians, by the way. Is the little faith in Jesus. And this is where the disciples come in. Now, the father takes his son, demon-possessed son, and he's going to take him to Jesus, and this is the part that you can miss. But before he does that, he takes him to the disciples. Did you see that? And the disciples could not heal the kid. Actually, the disciples are struggling so much that later on in, in verse 19, we see this. They ask Jesus a question. Why couldn't we drive, drive the demon out? And Jesus responds, because of your little faith. What does that mean? Does that mean that the disciples didn't try hard? I don't think so. Does that mean that they didn't have the quality or quantity of faith that it was required to cast out a demon? I don't think so. Did the disciples did not want this healing bad enough? Of course they did. What, it, what is going on? And this is the gist of it. Their problem was that the faith was little because it was a divided faith. You know what that means? When you trust Jesus... But with the same magnitude and intensity, you trust yourself. You don't get to have two gods. You will love one and hate the other. You will worship one and then diminish the other. The problem of the disciples as they're growing in their relationship with Jesus is that they have a divided faith. They have no issues trusting Jesus and trusting themselves just as much. And someone's got to ask the question, where did you get that from, Hannibal? It comes from the word could or couldn't. This is crazy. I'm starting text. L listen up. The word that is used there in the original is dunamai, which is where we get our word dynamite, which is where we get our word power. Do you know why is it that these people are trying to cast out a demon and they couldn't? Because they went to this kid trusting their own power. And if you are a good student of the Bible, you have to ask the question, how do I know that? Because the Gospel of Matthew doesn't say this, but the Gospel of Mark does. And Mark says, 
that after they ask this question, Jesus says, these kind of demons only come out by prayer and fasting. You know what the implication is there? These guys approach a demon. These guys approach this supernatural being. These guys come and they want to heal this boy. And they didn't even pray. Ain't that crazy? I don't, I'm not going to face a, dime, a, a demon without praying. There's an example of people in the Bible that went to cast out a demon and the demon jumped on them. There's an example that a guy was confronting a demon and then the demon got his clothes out and the guy is running up butt naked. So here you have followers of Jesus that these men went to because they represent Jesus and represent the name of Jesus. But they go out to cast out this demon, trusting, quote unquote, in Jesus, but trusting in their power way too much. Church, because I love you, you I got to tell you this. It is possible for us to believe in Jesus, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It is possible to believe that demons submit to him. It is possible to believe that nature submits to him. It is possible to believe that God is sovereign, that Jesus is sovereign. He works providentially and he's omniscient. He knows it all. While at the same time, believe that you got the power, like the song says. At the same time, with the same intensity. That's what little faith looks like. Yes, I trust Jesus. But I also trust myself. You know, I think that part of the reason why we struggle with this is because we are part of an quote-unquote advanced society. We are the society of medicine and science. We are the society that knows how to find solutions and fix problems. We are the product of the industrial revolution, the enlightenment. The people of little faith are the sophisticated people. The, pe the people have the ability to believe in God and believe in ourselves at the same time, with the same intensity, with the same magnitude. We are the people that could easily go to God and say, I believe in you, please step to the side, I got this. You know how I know that we struggle with that? Just look at, you, at your life of prayer. That's the ultimate evidence. One of the scholars puts it like this, little faith is not directed to Jesus. And little faith is not humble before Jesus. Little faith is, is big and self. It's to do it yourself faith. It believes in itself. Just as the disciples believe in themselves, their own ability, power, dynamite. Little faith. So we got the people with no faith in Jesus but faith in something else. We got an example of the people with little faith because they believe in Jesus and themselves. But thanks God that the text does not stop there because it actually shows us an example of the faith of the mustard seed, which you will find it in a very unique place. Verse 20, 
Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, the person with, the little, with, the, the person with uh, faith in anything but Jesus would say, you see, I could do that. And the person with little faith would say, well, I could do that. Look at the text says that if I have faith, I could move a mountain. Nothing is impossible for me. And that happens when you don't read a verse in its context. In the context of the transfiguration and Jesus being magnified and elevated. The only way we can properly understand this text is when we put it in the proper context. You know who the people of faith of the mustard seed are? It's the one that know that the only object of our faith is God. Not us. That the only one that the demons submit to is God, not us. That the only one nature submits to is God, not us. That the only one that is in control of everything is God, not us. That the only one that knows that God works providentially is God and not us. Is the one that understands that only God knows it all. Not us. Now this word gets crazy. The example of that faith is the father. Verse 14. When they came to the crowd, I mean approached Jesus and knelt before him. And he says, Lord, have mercy on my son. Did you know the word kneeling there is a symbol of submission. It's a symbol of humility. It's a symbol of surrendering. It's a symbol of adoration. This is the most natural reaction when you get a big picture of who God is. See, this man knows that he does not deserve anything. That's why he's crying out for mercy. He knows that he doesn't have what it he, what he takes to deliver his son. That's why he's going to Jesus. But he also knows that the only person, that no one except Jesus can be the object of our faith. And that's why he goes to him. Listen to this scholar. It is not necessary to have great faith, even a small faith is enough, as long as it is faith in a great God. It is not the amount of faith that matters. Listen up, church. It is not the amount of faith that matters. It is the posture and object of faith. So I think that the text gives us permission to do a little bit of application here. Which is the application of what is it that we do? What would you do if you are the man in that story? How would you handle suffering what will you do if you get to a point when you are completely hopeless and completely powerless see if you are the people of faith in anything but jesus you will try hard you will research you will pay you will work you will do whatever it takes but we also know that there are things that you just can't fix like death. What will you do then? Where do you go? 
See, the person of little faith will see his son struggling and, su- and, and suffering. And yes, you, you believe that God is sovereign and he's a God of providence and a God of power and a God of omniscience. You, you have all that stuff. But because you also trust so much in yourself, then prayer is the last thing you do instead of the first thing you do. And I find that super dangerous because I actually think that it's people with little faith, the ones that when they suffer, have the tendency to walk away from God. It's very, the, the, the gap between little faith and no faith at all is super narrow. So if this is where we are, we will start asking questions like, if God is truly powerful, how come he hasn't fixed this problem? Maybe he's not powerful enough. And if he's powerful enough, why is it that he doesn't do it? Maybe he's not good enough. And if he's powerful and good, maybe and he can't do anything, maybe he's not in control. And if, he know, and if I know that God knows it all, and if he knew that I was going to go through this, why would he allow me to go through this? See, but the problem is with these arguments and questions is that assumes that we know more than God. That just because we can see the good reasons behind suffering, something must be wrong. And I have to come back to the story of Job. Because Job is a perfect example of a man that went through suffering, that God allows evil, that he loses family, things, security, friends, and health. He lost all. And God never told them why. 42 chapters, and God never, God never told them why. Except that at the very end, after God has confronted him with his egocentric approach to life, he says, I know that you can do anything and, not want, and, and no one can stop you, says Job. I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. See, that's the faith of the mustard seed. It is not necessary to have great faith. Even a small faith is enough as long as it is faith in a great God. Now, that is so easy to say, so hard to believe. How many of you guys agree with that? At least half of you. The rest of you just don't care about life at all. So easy for me to preach it. So hard to believe it. So the question that I have to answer really quick here is, how do we, be, how do we, how do we begin to believe this? Or how do we continue to grow in believing this? Point number three, no one except Jesus is the heart of God. So I, I think that the structure of the text is really important, you know. At the beginning of the text, we see this father dealing with this demon-possessed kid. And God performing, Jesus performing this beautiful miracle. At the bottom of the text, we have these things about the sovereignty of God, omniscience of God, uh, providence of God, all these things, talking about the temple text. But right in the middle, we find verse 22. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. 
And I want to make the argument that the only reason, the only way you can begin to believe this or continue to grow in this is when you hyper-focus on verses 22 and 23. And I'm going to read this because I don't want to miss this and because I have very little time. If you're struggling in anything and you ask the question, is God powerful? Is God powerful? And I would say, of course he is. Then Jesus died and resurrected. Why would, you, why would you ever think that he cannot turn ashes into joy? Why would you ever think that he cannot do something good, even if you don't understand it? If the question is, is God sovereign? Is he really in control of everything? And I would say, of course he is. By the will of God, Jesus was delivered into the hands of men. To fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. So if God was in control of the crucifixion, what makes you think that he is not in control of your life? If the question is, God, does God really work providentially? And I would say, of course he does. If he used the Roman soldiers, and if he used our sin and their sin, and if he used the cross to accomplish his purposes, what makes you think that he's not going to use anything and everything, including our suffering, for his glory and our good? If the question is, is God omniscient? Does he know everything that, is, that has happened, is happening, and will happen? And I would say, of course he does. God the Father knew that Jesus was going to go to the cross. God the Father knew how much his son was going to suffer. God the Father knew how much he was going to be humiliated and rejected. God the Father knew that, he, that at the cross he would go through something similar to the father in the story. In which his son will suffer because of the evil in this world. But not only the father knew that, but Jesus knew that. And he also knew that he would be exposed to the evil in this world. And he also knew that he would go to experience the evil of the cross. And he would also know that the father would have to leave him alone. Even when he will cry out, why have you forsaken me? The father is looking for help for his son in the first narrative. And he got help. And here we have the ultimate savior crying out to his father. And he got nothing. Why? So we have no doubt that he's good and that he's for you and that he will never let you go and that he will use his power for you, his sovereignty for you, his providence for you, his omniscience for you. That's the promise for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. It is not necessary to have great faith. Even a small faith is enough as long as it's faith in a great, 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 great God. Amen. And if you doubt it, just look at the cross. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that even as we struggle with our faith, that even when we don't understand everything and see everything the way we're supposed to, that even when we have these questions, Lord, the cross is the ultimate guarantee, Lord, that you are for us, that you will use everything in your power to save us and continue to save us. That God, that 
that God, you are truly the ultimate power, that Satan submits to you, that nature submits to you, that you are the ultimate evidence, that the cross is the ultimate evidence that you are a sovereign God that works providentially, that is omniscient, that everything points, that at the end of the day, we can only rest and rest in you. I pray, Lord, that as a church, we could go to the cross and stay there. Because that's where we see our amazing God in Jesus Christ. Please, Lord, take us to the cross and leave us there. We're going to take the time to respond in adoration. And this is going to be an extended piece. And it's a beautiful piece. And I want to invite you that as we listen to this, you ask yourself the question, what kind of faith do I have? Am I the one with faith in everything but Jesus? Am I the one with little faith? Or am I the one with the faith like the mustard seed? And let the music dictate how your heart is dealing with this and allow the spirit to speak to you. And if you need to repent, do it. And if you need to ask Jesus to bring you to the cross again, do it. And if you need to become a believer today, do it. Take the time and allow the spirit to speak to you.
there's something beautiful about music is that it reminds you about the beauty of God. The same God that went to the cross. We makes it even more beautiful. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask you to please stand. Let me pray over you the blessing that we find in Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that his ways may be known on earth and his salvation among all the nations. And the church says, thanks for coming. We love you. Church, you are sent.